Welcome to The Wisdom Journey, where Stephen Davey is teaching through the entire Bible over three years. As you know, even extreme personal suffering couldn't distract Jesus from meeting the needs of others. As he hung on the cross, he showed concern for his executioners, a dying criminal, and his mother. Jesus is the ultimate example of a life lived for others. We're looking at this today in a lesson Stephen called, Unexpected Words from a Dying Man. There's something very solemn about a person's last words. In the face of of death, what a person truly believes often comes to the surface. I think of Voltaire, the, the noted French agnostic who had attempted with his writings to destroy the credibility of Christianity. On his deathbed, he said to his doctor, I am abandoned by God and man. On the other hand, Charles Spurgeon, the well-known pastor and author from London, England, in the late 1800s, said these final words, Jesus died for me. You know, last words have a way of revealing what matters most. Well, the Lord Jesus is about to deliver his final words prior to his death, They not only reveal who he is, but why he died on that cross. Now, what would you expect to hear from someone dying in agony on a cross? Well, uh, the Lord is going to make seven statements from the cross, often referred to as his seven last words. The first statement spoken by the Lord is recorded here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23 and verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, the verb tense indicates this phrase is actually repeated over and over again. So you can imagine the soldiers nailing his wrist to the cross. They hoist him up. They seat him on the saddle, the sedulum. They turn his legs and overlap his ankles and drive a single spike through them. Jesus is in extreme pain, and he keeps saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The gospel accounts tell us the soldiers mock him. The religious leaders jeer at him. The criminals crucified on either side of him are are cursing him. And Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That statement is significant because Jesus is actually acting out the role of a high priest. He's interceding for sinful humans who, because of the hardness of their hearts, can't see that he is truly the Lamb of God. Now, Luke also records the second statement. He begins setting the context here in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Matthew's account tells us that both men initially cursed at Jesus, but one of them now has a change of heart here in Luke chapter 23, and he now rebukes his fellow criminal, his partner in crime here in verse 40. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
This is an incredible admission. He confesses his guilt. He admits he deserves the death penalty. And then he announces what everybody already knew, that that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. Wow, what courage, especially in front of all these religious leaders. Let me tell you, this is faith and trust in Christ. And we know that because he now turns toward Jesus here in verse 42 and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Oh, no doubt he's been contemplating that placard nailed above Jesus' head that read, this is the king of the Jews. Well, this criminal is evidently a Jewish man. He now believes by faith that Jesus really is his king. He really does have a kingdom. And he says, Lord, I want to be in your kingdom. Jesus responds here in verse 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a wonderful conversion. This condemned thief is now promised a home in heaven. And let me tell you, he becomes a powerful lesson on the doctrine of salvation. He can't go back and live a better life. He can't join a church. He can't be baptized. He can't do any good deeds. The only thing he can do is declare his belief and trust in Jesus as his king, as his Messiah. And by the way, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Another key doctrine, following death, you immediately enter into either heaven or Hades, the holding place for hell. Not not some place where you go to sleep, you know, not, not some halfway house called purgatory where you suffer and you pay for your sins before getting into heaven. No, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, as we chronologically piece together these these moments on the cross, these last words over in John's gospel in chapter 19, it records the Lord's third statement. We're told there are four women at the cross, including Mary, Jesus' mother. John records here now in verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Now, I want to mention the Roman Catholic Church would say here that Jesus gave John the Apostle to Mary, thus making her the patroness over him and over all the apostles and and over all the church and every believer since then. But let me tell you, nothing in this verse even hints at that. Jesus is simply doing what the oldest son was to do. He's the firstborn. This is his earthly responsibility to see that his mother is is cared for. So this is kind of like his last will and testament. It's very brief. After all, Jesus has no earthly possessions to give to anybody. He doesn't have a house to sell. He has no life insurance policy. In fact, the soldiers have just gambled away his clothing down below his cross. The Bible is silent here where Joseph is concerned. By the way, we can be certain he died several years earlier. The children Mary and Joseph had after the virgin birth of Jesus, they've been mentioned by name in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56. That's why the Bible calls Jesus Mary's firstborn son, not her only 
son. So Jesus here is fulfilling his duty as the oldest son. He's handing over to John the responsibility of caring for his mother. Now, at noontime, sometime after this statement, darkness falls across the land. And for three hours, according to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 45 and following, the light of the sun somehow, miraculously, is blotted out, even though it's early afternoon. Now, we have every reason to believe that this darkness covers the entire planet. The Greek word for land here in verse 45 is gay, which can be translated earth. So this is, this is clearly a supernatural, global darkness. But why? Well, we can believe that it's now dark for several reasons. First, this darkness is, is a judgment. The rabbis had long taught that the darkening of the sun was the judgment of God for some terrible sin. Well, I believe God is sending a message here that mankind has committed the most terrible sin, crime, in human history. Secondly, this darkness would have been understood in these days as a a symbol of mourning. Amos chapter 8 and verses 9 and 10 tell us that on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Well, how prophetic is that? The only sun, the son of God, is now mourned because he's going to die. Well, third, darkness needs to be understood in the context of the Passover. You might remember the ten plagues God sent on Egypt that forced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Well, the ninth plague, just before the final one, the ninth plague was darkness over the land of Egypt for three days. And that darkness preceded the killing of the Passover lamb, as each Israelite family took a lamb, killed it, sprinkled its blood on the doorway of of their homes to protect them from the tenth and final plague. And what was that plague? The death of the firstborn. Darkness, the blood of the lamb is spilled, and then the death of the firstborn son. Well, what do you have here? The firstborn son is about to die on the cross. Darkness covers the land, not for three days, but for three hours. It's it's during this time that Jesus, the final Passover lamb, takes on himself the sin of the world. He's experiencing, beloved, the wrath of God the Father as he bears the sin of the whole world. Now with that, we're out of time for today. But as we will see, Jesus has much more to say from the cross, more declarations that give those of us who believe in him everlasting hope and assurance of everlasting life. Well, until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. This lesson is called Unexpected Words from a Dying Man. Stephen Davey is your Bible teacher on this series through all 66 books of the Bible. In addition to being the president of our ministry, Wisdom International, 
Stephen is also the president of Shepherd's Theological Seminary. If you know someone who's interested in graduate-level theological training, let them know about Shepherd's Seminary. It's a fully accredited graduate school offering several degree programs. Men and women have come to study from all over the world. There's also an online option, so if you want advanced theological training, you don't need to relocate. You can study from wherever you are. That's really convenient for people who are working and would find it difficult to move. There's also clusters of students who gather in local churches nationwide to take online courses together. Learn more about Shepherd's Seminary at wisdomonline.org forward slash STS. Do that today, then join us next time to continue your wisdom journey.